Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, September 5th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Israel's Netanyahu calls for deportations after clashes between Eritrean migrant groups. India's opposition parties plan to collaborate in the 2024 elections. Democrats float the idea of disqualifying Trump from running for office. Russia strikes port facilities in Odessa as Putin and Erdogan discuss the Black Sea grain deal. Rustem Umarov officially replaces Ukraine's sacked defense minister. The U.S. alleges that PRC nationals are gate-crashing military facilities. A key African climate summit begins in Kenya. Biden stumps for the economy and unions and against Trump on Labor Day. Flooding and mud swamps Burning Man. And an ADHD drug shortage stresses many American families as the school year starts. In our top story, news coming from Israel as Netanyahu calls for deportation of African migrants. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, PBS NewsHour, Reuters, BBC News, Al Jazeera, and Middle East Monitor. Following protests and clashes between differing Eritrean groups and Israeli police in Tel Aviv, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Sunday called for the removal of all African migrants from the country. Speaking at a special ministerial meeting following the violence in the capital that began Saturday, Netanyahu called for harsh measures, including the immediate deportation of those who took part. Clashes began following a march by Eritreans toward their country's embassy in Tel Aviv. Protesters and counter-protesters clashed over the 30th anniversary of Eritrea's current government's establishment, as well as Eritrea's Revolution Day, which commemorates the War of Independence against Ethiopia that began in 1961. Over 170 were wounded as a result of the conflict with police, as well as infighting between Eritreans. Tear gas, stun grenades, and live rounds were used by officers in Tel Aviv who also suffered injuries. Israel is believed to be the home to at least 25,000 African migrants, primarily from Eritrea and Sudan. Netanyahu further stated that Israel was seeking to deport 1,000 Eritreans immediately following the violence and that an updated plan for the remaining illegal infiltrators would be prepared. Israel has used administrative detention against those accused of involvement in the violence. Approximately 40 individuals had been arrested as of Monday, according to the Times of Israel. Thanks, Eric. Israel Hayom brings us the right narrative spin. Israel must respond with strength against the foreign gangs causing violence and chaos in the streets of Israeli cities. While the judicial system has previously dismissed attempts to clamp down on infiltrators, the same mistake cannot occur again. Unless stern action is taken, Jewish culture will slowly become a minority because of those who take advantage of Israel's goodwill. Counter that with a left narrative coming from Haaretz. Netanyahu's government is using the weekend's unfortunate clashes to target the country's judicial system and engage in xenophobia and racism. To remove migrants in such a fashion is a clear violation of both civil and human rights, and the current detention of many individuals without trial highlights the state's growing authoritarian regime. And we often have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 1.3% chance that civil war will break out in Israel before the year 2024. God, given the the constant state of, it seems, strife and conflict in that area, 
I'd hate to see what an actual civil war would look like if this is peacetime. It's so extreme. They just take it, take it to extreme measures. Why is that, Scott? Well, if we could, if we could answer that one, I mean, I, I mean, I, honestly, I think it comes, it really comes down to a lack of respect and a lack of resources. I mean, it, it would, it's amazing what people will do if they can't feed their family. And you say, if you do this thing, you will be able to. And, yeah, uh, know. you know, if, if, if yeah. I'm, I, I shudder to think what I would do if I was, I'm so thankful I'm not in that situation. But if I was, I would do some weird stuff. I can tell you that. Well, you know what? We can, we can, I've got a whole list of things that I know you would start with, but we're not going to go there right now, okay? Let's just keep going with the news. Next up, India's opposition parties will jointly contest the 2024 elections. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Outlook India, Tribune India, Frontline, ABC News, The Indian Express, and Al Jazeera. The Indian National Developmental Inclusive Alliance, or India, formed in June by 28 opposition parties, announced on Friday that they will contest the 2024 national elections together as far as possible to avoid splitting votes in favor of Prime Minister Narendra Modi's Hindu nationalist BJP. The likely exceptions are reportedly the states of Kerala, where the BJP has a minor presence, and West Bengal, where the Marxist Communist Party of India is expected to challenge Chief Minister Mamata Banerjee. The resolution to start seat-sharing arrangements to setups against BJP candidates in each voting district in the vote, scheduled to be held by May 2024, came after a two-day meeting in Mumbai, attended by several opposition key figures, including Congress parties Rahul Gandhi and Sonia Gandhi. Additionally, instead of appointing a single conveyor, additionally, instead of appointing a single convener, The alliance announced a 14-member coordination committee to perform tasks, including establishing statewide committees, finalizing meeting venues, and planning the proposed collective public rallies throughout the country. The chief minister of the state of Bihar, Nidish Kumar, added Sunday that the opposition alliance will hold countrywide programs on October 2nd to celebrate Gandhi Jayant, an annual event to commemorate the birthday of Mahatma Gandhi, without providing further details. Meanwhile, on Thursday, Modi's government established a high-level committee to examine if it's possible to simultaneously roll out national and state elections, a move that has fueled speculations of an early national poll as a special session of parliament, and the first since 2017 was announced a day earlier. Thank you, Scott, for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from National Herald. While seat-sharing agreements are likely to boost the opposition camp in the national elections, public disillusion alone may not be enough to dethrone Modi. Thus, the India Alliance must also have a communication strategy, an electoral plan, and a vision for the country, as the BJP has unmatched financial power and control over the media and the state machine. And Indian News brings us Narrative B. Opposition leaders that have created this so-called unity platform exclusively to try to defeat Modi have groundlessly claimed that the premier has become scared to the point that he's planning to weaken democracy to remain in power. His actions say otherwise, as he has recommended the one nation, one election concept to bolster India's democratic system. Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 50% chance that there will be a non- BJP Prime Minister of India before 2030. Turning our attention back to the United States, the Democrats float Trump's disqualification under Constitution. And here 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Huffington Post, NBC, Fox News, CNN, The Washington Times, and Politico. Over the weekend, U.S. Representative Adam Schiff, Democrat of California, and Senator Tim Kaine, Democrat of Virginia, argued that Donald Trump is in violation of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which bars anyone who has engaged in insurrection or rebellion from serving in elected office. This comes as Arizona's Democratic Secretary of State Adrian Fontes and New Hampshire's Republican Secretary of State David Scanlon revealed last week that they're figuring out what to do if Trump faces disqualification challenges. This follows former Republican Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson's comment during the GOP primary debate last month that should Trump become the nominee, he was morally and likely constitutionally disqualified as a result of the events surrounding January 6, 2021. Though legal scholars, including prominent conservatives, have agreed that the 14th Amendment renders Trump ineligible to hold public office as a long shot, the U.S. Constitution doesn't describe how to enforce the ban that has only been applied twice since the 1880s, both times against former Confederates. Last week, however, this legal theory suffered a court defeat as an Obama-appointed judge dismissed a case filed by a Florida tax attorney to oust Trump from the state's presidential ballot under the 14th Amendment. It's likely that further attempts to ban Trump from the ballot, enforced either as the result of a lawsuit or as a unilateral decision of secretaries of state, would force the U.S. Supreme Court into a contentious debate over the meaning of the 110-word provision ratified in 1868 and rarely interpreted since then. Thanks, Eric. American Spectator brings us the pro-Trump narrative. Democrats, the mainstream medias, and Republicans in name only have been preparing for this move for a long time. Terrified that the former president will defeat Biden despite efforts to convict him and damage his reputation, they're now hoping to strip voters of their right to choose from all candidates. This is a deeply undemocratic move, especially with the former president surging in the polls. We have an anti-Trump narrative coming from Reasons.com. Coming from Reason.com. Given that Trump engaged in an insurrection after knowing he lost the 2020 presidential election, breaking the oath of office he took in 2017, all 50 state secretaries of state must enforce the enshrined Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and keep him off the ballot. Some might say that voters should be the ones judging Trump, but the supreme law of the land clearly states that only presidents who follow their constitutional oath are eligible on the ballot. And the Metaculous community predicts with this nerd narrative that there's a 9% chance that Donald Trump will be removed or blocked from the ballot of any U.S. state for a federal office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, according to the Metaculous prediction community. But weren't you a law major? <laughs> I was uh, political science, yeah. Oh, that's right. So yeah, I would love to hear your opinion on this. I, I wouldn't be shocked if Trump ends up getting taken off the ballot in one of the states that he never would have won in the first place, like California or something. Right. And it, and it's like a big political, ironically, a political move that doesn't really affect the politics at all. Yeah. I I guess I didn't realize that states could do that. I didn't know they had that right to take, uh, you, you know, leave whoever they want to on the ballot. And, and I think if you look close enough at some of these old dusty documents that are in, uh, you know, some of these chests and, and archives and stuff. I bet you you can do a lot of things you didn't know you could do. Right. <laughs> Good point. I, I I remember when uh when I lived in Washington, so it would have been the 2016 election, the one where Trump won. There right. was one weird thing where like like a Native American one of the electoral votes went to like a Native American. Oh, Faith Spotted Eagle was her name. 
Oh, really? Uh, she received one Washington state electors presidential vote. So in the election, she got one electoral vote somehow due to some weird machinations. And I don't even want to discuss it. I'm not, I don't even know what the deal was, but yeah, faith spotted Eagle got one electoral vote in the 2016 election. Interesting, right? It really is. I mean, little nuggets of information. You may have gotten one or two. You may not have known it. You know, you, you might've been third place. <laughs> You're right. Russia strikes port facilities in Odessa ahead of the Putin Erdogan talks. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Ukranska Pravda, the Romanian Ministry of National Defense, Ukraine Form, and TASS. Russia launched a wave of drone attacks on one of Ukraine's largest grain exporting ports in the Odessa region on Monday, hours before Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan met with Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin to discuss the resurrection of the now-collapsed grain deal. Oleg Kuyper, head of Ukraine's military administration in Odessa, said that 17 Russian drones were shot down by Ukrainian air defenses in the space of the three-and-a-half-hour attack. Unfortunately, some targets were hit, he said, adding that warehouses and production facilities as well as agricultural equipment were damaged in the attack. However, a statement from Russia's defense ministry said the attacks targeted a Ukrainian shipbuilding plant where unmanned motorboats were assembled using foreign imported parts. Similar sea drones were used by Ukraine to strike the Kerch Bridge in Crimea in July, as well as in other attacks, including on Russian vessels. Meanwhile, Ukraine's Border Guard Service said that during the drone attack in the early hours of Monday, two drones fell and detonated in the territory of NATO member Romania. In a statement, Romania's National Defense Ministry did not deny that the drones landed in its territory, but said that it monitored in real time the situation, adding that the drone attacks conducted by the Russian Federation did not pose any direct military threats against our national territory or Romania's territorial waters. During Erdogan's visit to the Russian resort of Sochi, the Turkish president said that he and Putin discussed ways to revive the grain deal. Putin also reiterated an interest in restarting the agreement as soon as curbs on Russian exports were lifted. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. Al Jazeera gives us our first spin. It's a pro-Russian narrative. Russia's reasons for leaving the grain deal is that Western countries have not moved to lift the sanctions off of Russian grain and fertilizer exports, as was initially agreed to when the deal was first struck. Russia has seen no promising signs that these promises would be fulfilled, but remains open to reviving the deal if the export issue is resolved. And the pro-establishment narrative comes from The Guardian. Despite Russia's claims, Western countries have provided Russia with a comprehensive guide of how a series of exemptions had been issued on the country's grain and fertilizer exports. Russia is using the stoppage of the deal to seek more concessions. And the nerds at Metaculus are at it again with their narrative. They say there's a 5% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before 2024. More news from Ukraine as Rustem Umarov replaces the sacked defense minister. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, the official website of the president of Ukraine, Ukrainska Pravda, The Guardian, and CNN. Following allegations of corruption, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky announced in his nightly address on Sunday that Oleski Reznikov has been removed as the country's defense minister and replaced by Rustem Umarov. 
Without making reference to the corruption allegations, Zelensky claimed that after 550 days of full-scale war, the defense ministry was in need of, quote, new approaches and other formats of interaction with both the military and society at large. Reznikov submitted his resignation letter to the Vrkovna Rada, Ukraine's parliament, on Monday. In it, he stated, quote, pursuant to the dedication by pursuant to the dedication by the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, I have submitted a letter of resignation to the Verkhovna Rada of Ukraine, adding that he will soon submit a report on the activities he's undertaken. Umarov is a Crimean Tatar born in Soviet Uzbekistan, where his family was exiled under Joseph Stalin. He has reportedly been closely involved in negotiations with Russia, including on prisoner swaps and the Black Sea grain deal that collapsed earlier in the year. Elsewhere, Ihor Kolomoisky, one of Ukraine's richest men and a key backer of Zelensky's 2019 presidential campaign, was arrested on charges of fraud and money laundering, the security service of Ukraine said on Saturday. He is accused of laundering over half a billion of Ukrainian grivnia, or 130.5 million U.S. dollars out of the country between 2013 and 2020, and was ordered to be held in pretrial detention until October 31st, unless bail in excess of 500 million Ukrainian grivnia, or 14 million U.S. dollars, is posted. The Spectator brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Zelensky understands that if Ukraine is to join NATO or the EU, it has to clamp down on its problem of corruption that existed long before the war with Russia. He is rightly taking steps to eradicate this problem and should be commended for taking Ukraine in the right direction. The establishment critical narrative comes from CF.org. Despite Zelensky's public pronouncements, he himself has been at the center of corruption allegations to the tune of several hundred million dollars. How can he be taken seriously on corruption if he's also involved? And Metaculus brings us another nerd narrative. This time they predict there is a 0.8% chance that Ukraine will join the European Union before the year 2024. The U.S. accuses Chinese nationals of gate-crashing military facilities. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, Business Insider, Reuters, and The Wall Street Journal. The U.S. Department of Defense and the FBI have identified about 100 incidents involving Chinese nationals, sometimes posing as tourists, allegedly trying to gatecrash American military and other installations without proper authorization as potential acts of espionage. The U.S. government said these incidents include PRC nationals crossing into a U.S. missile range in New Mexico and scuba divers swimming near a Florida rocket launch site. Some incidents included visitors following Google Maps directions to a military base in order to arrive at a McDonald's or Burger King. Chinese Chinese nationals allegedly tried to move past guards at an army base in Alaska, saying they had hotel reservations on the base. U.S. Representative Jason Crow, Democrat of Colorado, who is a member of the House Intelligence Committee, suggested that more incidents may not be accounted for because most trespassing laws are state and local in nature. In addition, arrests were reportedly made in at least one of these incidents. In 2020, three Chinese citizens pled guilty to illegally entering a naval station in Key West and taking photos. This report comes following recent steps by the PRC and the U.S. to reduce tensions following February's spy balloon incident. Those were the facts, and our first spin is coming from Voice of America, and it's an anti-China narrative. This latest wave of Chinese espionage should come as no surprise. 
The PRC takes every opportunity it can to target U.S. industry and government agencies to attempt to steal military and industrial secrets. The U.S. must be on maximum alert for this type of behavior. And Xinhua brings us the pro-China narrative. Despite the constant allegations by Washington of supposed PRC espionage activities, the truth is that the U.S. is the world's most extensive spy power. America should focus on building goodwill to mend its relationship with China and reduce its own surveillance state intrusions. Eric, as an American, I'm, I'd be kind of embarrassed. All these spies are seeing as our Burger Kings and McDonald's. I'd, <laughs> I'd rather they see, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge or Yellowstone or something. This is embarrassing. It really is. News coming from Nairobi as the first African climate summit is underway. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, African News, Voice of America, Reuters, and Associated Press. On Monday in Nairobi, Kenya's President William Ruto and the African Union kicked off the first African Climate Summit. The summit will convene with representation from more than a dozen African nations seeking to have more involvement in climate change advocacy and policy. The goal of the summit is for the African continent to showcase the continent's leadership in green power production. Proper investment and financial diplomacy through debt forgiveness will be emphasized. Africa is home to 1.2 billion people residing across 54 countries with diverse strengths and vulnerabilities while being rich in natural resources and sources of renewable energy. Ruto said that the summit will show that Africa is a, quote, critical player in solving the world's climate crisis. During the opening day of the agenda, some attending countries expressed frustration that they are being asked to develop their nations using cleaner technologies, while wealthy nations remain the largest polluters. As a means of collecting funding from rich carbon emitters, the Africa Carbon Markets Initiative was launched at COP27. The market uses carbon credits to fund climate activities, with the oil-rich United Arab Emirates committing to buy $450 million in credits. According to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, in 2020, $83 billion in climate funding was provided to poorer nations, a 4% increase from the previous year. Even with funding increasing, pledges amounting to $100 billion annually are still reportedly needed from wealthy nations to maximize climate implementation initiatives. Thanks for that rundown, Eric. We have an establishment critical narrative from Amnesty International. While the summit's goals are laudable, there has been too much emphasis placed on carbon markets. While these markets seem like a positive way to invest in climate change, they simply reinforce the inequities already in existence between the wealthy carbon-emitting nations and poor, vulnerable nations. Continuing to increase emissions and shifting the climate responsibility to projects completed in Africa is a negligent and short-term solution to the global climate crisis. The International Fund for Animal Welfare is giving us the pro-establishment narrative. Africa is stepping into the spotlight as a critical driver in climate change conversations. The continent is home to a large swath of the world's biodiverse landscapes and a large portion of the world's most vulnerable populations. With Kenya leading, the consortium of nations will not only show the world that Africa is not the problem, but a key piece of the solution and a center for the future of climate change action. If, you ever, if you've ever driven from Reno to uh, Salt Lake City, there's some open land. And I feel like, you know, solar dishes there or, you know, planting forests or things like that. You know, if, if, if the rest of the world wants to burn carbon like jerks, people with open land like Africa, that might be an opportunity to be able to counteract it in exchange for some, some, some money. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And you know what? Some of the renewable energy solutions that are that are prevalent here in the Midwest are the the big windmills, like the wind farms. Oh yeah, are, do you, yeah. Do you, are those are, when you're They're driving everywhere. around that that's a regular thing? Interesting. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's just part of the landscape around here now. So, so is that what your like household power is that coming from wind power? Or where, where's no. that energy going? No, that's that's just going to the storage to like hubs, like energy hubs. Do so. do you know what kind of power your house runs on? We're on nuclear power, right? Where I where I live, I think uh, I think we're on coal. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think nice. we might be on coal. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it'll know. blow all those fans will blow the smoke away. You're <laughs> right. <fine. laughs> That's <Yeah>. right. <laughs> Biden discusses Trump, the economy, and unions on Labor Day. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC News, ABC News, Reuters, The Inquirer, CNN, and CNBC. President Joe Biden gave a Labor Day speech in the battleground state of Pennsylvania, criticizing former President Donald Trump and touting his administration's economic policies. Speaking to a crowd of union workers in Philadelphia, Biden said, Bidenomics is a blue-collar blueprint for America. He focused on job growth under his administration, saying that he added 13.5 million jobs while the U.S. recovered from the pandemic. Refusing to call out Trump directly by name, Biden continuously referred to the former president as, quote, the last guy, and said, the guy who held this job before me was just one of two presidents in history who left office with fewer jobs in America than when he got elected to office. In his speech to the sheet metal workers Local 19, Biden accused Trump's administration of shipping jobs to China, while saying that his administration is bringing manufacturing back to the U.S., he also called Trump a great real estate builder who really didn't build a damn thing. His speech also sought to rally the support of unions ahead of the 2024 election. Despite Biden's satisfaction with his economic record, a new Wall Street Journal poll showed that 63% of people view the economy negatively, with 36% calling it poor. Biden's approval rating sits at just 42%, with many voters concerned about the 80-year-old's age. Monday was Biden's seventh trip to Philadelphia this year and his 14th since taking office. Pennsylvania is one of the most important election battleground states. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. We have a Democratic narrative starting our round of spins. It's coming from Vanity Fair. President Biden is going back to his roots and showing his commitment to unions and the working class to the American people. The president has a record of defending workers that spans decades, and he made sure to let everyone in the audience know that his predecessor was no champion of the working class. Unlike the, quote, last guy, who was all talk and no action, Biden has a plan that is working for all Americans. Daily Caller counters with the Republican narrative. While Joe Biden may try to tell Americans that he has made the economy stronger than it was when he took office, the overwhelming evidence suggests that Bidenomics has failed, and the American people know it. The Trump economy was soaring at a record pace before the entire world was shut down, and Biden completely botched the COVID recovery. The only record Biden has is making the economy he ruined slightly less awful. And the nerds from Metaculus give us another narrative. They say there's a 60% chance that Joe Biden will be elected U.S. president in 2024. Eric, as you know, I live in the state of Pennsylvania, not far from Philadelphia, and uh, it is kind of nice living in a state where my vote will actually matter for once. I, that's never <laughs> been the case for me. I've never, I've never, uh, uh, you know, not not since I moved here, the most recent election. I, I right. grew up in Connecticut, dyed blue forever. 
Yeah. And then I went to college in New York State, dyed blue forever. Yeah. And then I lived in California, dyed blue forever. And then I lived in Idaho, dyed red forever. And then I lived in Washington State, which is dyed blue forever. So it's kind of refreshing that I, in this, you know, I, I, my vote kind of matters, like for real. Absolutely. It sure does, Scott. Sign up twice. Vote twice, man. Yeah, I'm going to vote twice. I'll register yeah. my dog. Brownie will vote. Yeah, I think she's an independent, though. So oh, we'll gotcha. See. Yeah. We'll see what happens with that. Okay. She votes third party. She throws her vote away. Flooding and mud disrupts the Burning Man Festival. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, CBS Today, USA Today, and New York Times. On Saturday, the Pershing County Sheriff's Office in Nevada announced that an investigation had been launched into a death that occurred at the notorious Burning Man Festival. It's estimated that 70,000 people attended the event in the Black Rock Desert before torrential downpours turned the usually dry and dusty landscape into a mud pit. Organizers issued a shelter-in-place order. However, some attendees attempted to drive or walk to the nearest paved highway five miles or eight kilometers away. With the shelter-in-place order, attendees were asked to conserve food, water, and fuel until a safe route to leave had been established. Portable cell phone towers were brought in to provide communication for the attendees stuck at flooded or muddied campsites. A post on Instagram, record producer DJ Diplo announced that he and comedian Chris Rock trekked six miles or nine kilometers through the desert and then hitched a ride to Reno 100 miles or 160 kilometers away. The annual nine-day festival was scheduled to conclude on Labor Day with the burning of a sculpture called the Main Temple of the Heart being initially canceled. However, on Monday, the event organizers announced that the sculpture burning would proceed. Revelers in attendance seem to have taken the dangerous turn of events in stride. Star Hartsong, who traveled from Texas to participate, said, quote, Burning Man is an all-weather state of mind. When it's time to leave, we'll leave. Thanks for that update, Eric. Narrative A comes from Quartz. The Burning Man Festival is a free-spirited event frequented by artists, self-expressionists, and the California elite. While the event is usually plagued by extreme heat and dust storms, this time the haunting hazard was rain. As climate change alters Nevada's landscape and environment by increasing rainfall and the frequency of rainstorms, The event's organizers will need to increase their planning and preparation for new kinds of extreme weather events to keep their devoted followers safe and coming back year after year. CBS gives us Narrative B. The community attending Bernie Man is made up of resilient and self-reliant people. When plans change, as necessary with the unexpected rainfall, the Burning Man attendees adapted and were well-equipped for survival. The organizers have run scenarios and drills that allowed them to best prepare attendees and manage the incident after it occurred, as evident in their ability to provide transportation for those who made it to the main gate. The loss of life was tragic this year, but preparation and planning kept thousands of people safe. And Metaculus is even weighing in on this story with a nerd narrative. They predict there's a 43% chance that large-scale solar radiation management will be used to mitigate the effects of climate change in the 21st century. In all seriousness, that's going to be a no from me, dog. That does not sound like a good time to me. <laughs> I know, right? Even on a, even in good weather, but in yeah. uh, I, I ain't trekking. Uh, one time, I'll, if I may digress, I was staying 
in the Orleans Casino for work. I used to work in sports ticketing. Oh, so yeah. So staying in the Orleans Casino in Las Vegas right. for the WAC basketball tournament, men's and women's. Yeah. And I had an afternoon off. So I decided I'm going to walk from the Orleans, which is off the strip, to the strip. I got all day. I'm not, I was trying really not to spend that much money. I didn't want to, you know, so I'll just, you know, it was pretty nice out of walk. Yeah. Man, walking through the desert, even if it's a parking lot, is no picnic. Holy. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> it was like a, it was, I'd have to look it up. It was a three or four mile walk, but it occurred to me if I tripped and turned my ankle, even though I'm just in a huge empty parking lot, no one might ever find me. Like, it, like right. I, this might be it for me. Like, and I wasn't even in the desert desert. I was just in an abandoned, you know, no, you know, these parking lots are there for when there's huge events or something. Oh, sure. There was, n- there was nothing. I just, I walked kind of kitty corner across parking lots and eventually ended up by the Rio. So if you, someone looks at a map and plots from the Orleans to the Rio, you can see where I walked. And it, it really did occur to me, like when I finally made it to the Rio and I made it to one of those walk up bars, I mean, yeah. I wasn't getting a, a tequila sunrise. I was getting some water. I mean, I was, I was ready to, I, I was a little bit, I, I for bet. real got a little nervous on the way. And I had no, of course there's no cell service. I don't know yeah. why you go 50 feet off the strip. There's no service. Right. And it really did occur to me. Like if I turn my ankle, they might find my skeleton next month when the heavyweight <laughs> fight happens or something. Right. It's no joke. You know, oh, if you man, go out in the scary. desert, man, and you're not prepared, Oh my goodness gracious. It's bad, huh? Yeah, yeah. Our final story, an ADHD drug shortage continues as U.S. schools open. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC 12 WJRT Flint, Michigan, CNBC, Fox News, and CNN. With schools starting back up for children across the U.S., an ongoing shortage of ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder medications, is causing stress in many American families. The Food and Drug Administration first announced a nationwide shortage of Adderall, which is one of the most widely used medications for ADHD, 10 months ago. Experts expect the supply issues to possibly worsen in the coming months. While some pharmaceutical manufacturers have predicted that the drug shortage will end soon, there is no definitive timeline for when the medication will be readily available again. In the meantime, some parents of children with ADHD have turned to finding alternative pharmacies or trying non-drug treatment alternatives. Dr. Warren Eng, president of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, said that without medication, children with ADHD may struggle in school, fail their classes, act out, or be sent to the principal, or even be held back a grade. Adderall is one of more than 300 drugs that are currently in short supply in the U.S. The list also includes several alternatives for Adderall, like methylphenidate, which is also known under the brand names Ritalin and Concerta. Data show more and more prescriptions have been written for ADHD medications over the past decade. A recent report from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that prescriptions for the medications rose particularly high for young adults during the COVID pandemic. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. We'll begin our round of spins with Narrative A coming from CNN. Those who need stimulant medications to treat conditions like ADHD should be able to easily access these prescriptions. Being forced to cut off cold turkey or go without could be very harmful for many people, especially young school children. Pharmaceutical companies need to be more transparent and forward about how much longer these drug shortages will last. And Salon.com brings us Narrative B. 
Stimulant drugs like those used to treat ADHD are often misused and overprescribing these serious medications is a big concern for parents and regulators. With the current shortage in place, this would be a natural time to reevaluate how these drugs can be prescribed safely and responsibly. This will help ADHD be managed in a more sustainable manner going forward. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast on Tuesday, September 5th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more about the Verity Podcast at verity.news. You can also download the Verity Podcast app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steider, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Thank you.